Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Re-electing a strong, stable, united, conservative majority government. After a hard-fought campaign, the United Conservative Party is back with the second majority. So what will Danielle Smith's priorities be and what will her victory mean for federal-provincial relations? We will ask the Premier. Also... There is a very clear apprehension of bias that undermines the work that he can do. Calling on the special rapporteur to step down. Does the NDP think that David Johnston is damaged goods? And what is the party willing to do to get a public inquiry into foreign interference? We will speak with Jagmeet Singh. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Sarabio. Well, it was a late night for many Albertans, but by the end, the United Conservative Party emerged victorious, winning a second majority. Throughout the campaign, Danielle Smith and her party promised tax cuts, senior discounts and focused on crime, a message that successfully countered the NDP warnings about Smith and her ability to lead for every Albertan. Now... Many folks uh, wrote us off, even just as recently as last month. But you know what happened? Despite it all, today Albertans chose to move our province forward by re-electing a strong, stable, united, conservative majority government. Well, we are very happy to welcome on the program tonight Danielle Smith. Uh, Premier, thank you for joining us. Congratulations on your win. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, as you mull over last night's results, I'm wondering about Edmonton and Calgary right now, because uh, as you know, no UCP seats in the capital city, uh, losing 14 of 26 seats in Calgary. Is there a message that you take from that? How might you address the, the, the lack of uh, representatives from those uh, cities? Well, I, I was very pleased to see that we managed to, to maintain uh, our conservative coalition united. We got 50, almost 53% of the vote. Last time around, it was 55% of the vote. I think the lesson I take is that we really now are a two-party system with the NDP having consolidated the vote on their side. And they're going to be a very strong opposition and they'll be raising a lot of issues that we need to respond to. And uh, I'm delighted as well that we do have such a broad base of support. I've got representation from Fort McMurray and Grand Prairie, Red Deer, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, Calgary, and in the area around Edmonton. So I, I, I want to make sure that we're governing for all Albertans. There'll be a little bit more work I have to do to, to reach out and make sure that we're making good decisions for Edmonton. It's such a vital part of our economy. But uh, I, I think we're, we're going to be able to put a, a good team around the cabinet table. Mm -hmm. Now, the Prime Minister did send out congratulations this morning. Uh, He did so uh, in a tweet, and it reads as follows. He says, congratulations, Danielle Smith. Let's keep working together to deliver results for Albertans. Let's create more good jobs, grow our economy, and continue to position Alberta as a leader in clean energy. I'm wondering what you take from that. I did have a chance to talk to the Prime Minister earlier today. And I, I just I expressed my dismay at uh, how the environment minister Stephen Gibbo has has uh, put his his posture towards our province and said that 
We are, uh, once again, I reiterated that, that we share the aspiration to be carbon neutral by 2050. We just want to do it a different way. We want to reduce uh, the amount of emissions with carbon capture utilization and storage, which we're a world leader in. We want to develop a hydrogen economy. I think that that's our pathway to, to zero emissions vehicles. We want to work with British Columbia on more LNG export internationally to reduce global emissions. And we've got Lithium, we've got geothermal, we've got uh, potential for small modular nuclear when that gets rolled out on in eastern Canada in the coming years, and and those are the kind of things I think we can work together on. I but the I think unfortunately when you when you have the federal government that has taken aggressive positions proposing emissions caps, clean electricity regs that would phase in a net zero electricity grid, a just transition of our oil and natural gas workers completely out of work. That, that I think, is, has uh, made people very wary of the federal government. And I, I told the prime minister I'd like to restart our relationship on the on the basis of the areas that we can uh, agree. And I, I, that tweet, I, I hope, is an indication that he's prepared to work with us on that. Well, what was his response to that? When you say to him that you want to restart the relationship, what was his, his response to you? I'll know in a couple of weeks because we have been told that they are prepared to bring through an emissions cap regulation within the next couple of weeks. So they initially suggested 42% reduction in oil and natural gas by 2030, which is frankly unachievable. We cannot do that within seven years and it would amount to a production cap and we would, we would fight that with uh, every tool in our toolbox. And then also a net zero electricity grid. We have already seen a, an, uh, an estimate of what that would cost. $52 billion, it would increase electricity prices in our province by 40%. And even the NDP in Saskatchewan have uh, sided with uh, Scott Moe's government saying it's unachievable. So I, I will judge the, the prime minister and his willingness to work with us on the basis of his actions. And those are those are two things that I would strongly urge him not to bring through. So because, what, uh, we, just know it'll put us on a collision course. Sorry to interrupt, but what would be an acceptable target then? What what numbers or what dates could you work with and build a relationship on? Well, I think that uh, neutral by 2050 is what we signed on to internationally, and we're prepared to work towards that. Uh, we are in the process right now of just doing our own abatement curves, talking with each industry, because each industry has uh, different targets, different levels of technology. Some are moving faster than we ever anticipated such as uh, those, the, the, the great progress that we've made on emissions reduction of, of methane emissions and the great progress that we've made is uh, on reducing emissions from the electricity grid due to switching to, to natural gas. So I would say that we want to be a lot more collaborative with our industry, knowing what is achievable, and then work towards establishing targets on that basis. But uh, we're all working towards net zero by, by 2050. We've got the Pathways Group, which is our oil sands group, They've made that target. Air, Air Products is a hydrogen facility. They've made a net zero target, as has Dow uh, Petrochemical. They've made that net zero target. So I think our industry is being very responsible in, in setting up that pathway, but they need the time to adopt the, the technology and, and the time to be able to implement it. And I'm, I'm hoping the prime minister will work with us on that. Well, as you say, we'll, we'll know in a couple of weeks' time. But, you know, there are also questions right now around issues like the Canada Pension Plan and the RCMP. And I realize that neither made it to, to your campaign platform. But will you be moving to pull Alberta out of CPP and separately out of the RCMP to create a provincial police force? One of the things we, we, we got feedback from our municipalities is that they wanted the option to look at different policing options. So we've uh, funded studies for about a dozen municipalities who are considering having their own police force, which is what Grand Prairie ultimately decided to do. 
There are others that want us to set up sheriff's detachments, and there are others who are looking at regional policing. So we're being responsive to what our municipalities want, and we're continuing to build out new units of our, our sheriff's division. So that, that's the approach that, that uh, we have taken in response to some of the concerns that we heard. When it comes to the, the Canada pension, I, I understand how our, our, our legislation works. No province is uh, able to leave the Canada pension without being uh, able to offer, offer equal or better benefits. And that was the study that Albertans asked us to commission, is what would it look like if we had an Alberta pension plan? Would the benefits be better? Would it make sense? Uh, we're, we were expecting that report to be finished in May, so I'm assuming it's going to be landing very soon. When it becomes available, we'll we'll, we'll re release it to the public and have a, a broader a broader conversation about it. But the panel that looked into this and asked us to do the study said that no decision should be made without a province-wide referendum. So we want to gauge whether or not there's an appetite for that. And mm -hmm. that we have to make sure that the, the work is done first. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, before we're out of time, I, I do want to also talk, talk about Take Back Alberta because it was raised by uh, by the NDP during this campaign, a third party group that speaks about religious freedom, individual rights, warns about big government. But the flip side are, are people who are concerned that its members are, are fundamentalists that have intolerant views. And its key organizer, uh, David Parker, who you know, he reportedly bragged about having an influence on you and your party. Uh, what do you say to people who may have lingering concerns about Take Back Alberta and what it means for your government? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, party processes are very different than what you do in government. Our party has 120,000 members and it's one member, one vote, and they have an opportunity to put policy forward to be debated at our AGM, which will happen in October. But the, the business of government is to take the feedback that you get from members and to talk to stakeholders and to see what can be implemented. And, and that's why you have to govern for all Albertans, which is what I intend to do. I, I got a very strong mandate last night on the basis of the things that I campaigned on, which was making sure that jobs, economy, investment continue, making sure we continue to diversify our economy, that we address issues of affordability, that we continue our reform of healthcare, that we continue to implement our Alberta model for mental health and addiction treatment, and that we address public safety. And I feel like I have a mandate to, to move forward on, on all of those things from all Albertans. Premier Danielle Smith, thank you for the time and uh, congratulations again. Thank you, my pleasure. The call for a public inquiry into foreign interference got louder today. The NDP introducing a motion in the House that calls on David Johnston, the special rapporteur, to step down due to an apprehension of bias. The motion also calls for a public inquiry to be struck. Now that goes against the recommendation Johnston made last week, arguing a public inquiry could compromise national security and intelligence. Well, joining us now is the leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, good to see you again. Thank you so much. Now, listening to your press conference today, you, you talk about being careful uh, to, to avoid attacking Mr. Johnston uh, personally. But by saying that there is this apprehension of bias uh, about the man, are you not attacking his character and whether or not he's actually trustworthy to do the job? No, this is a question about the appearance. And this is something that we studied very carefully in law school. Mr. Johnson himself is someone who has done a great service to the country, but his job is to restore confidence in the public when it comes to foreign interference. And in that job, the appearance of a bias undermines his ability to do that. And at this point, there is such a mounting appearance of bias that it, it puts his position in such a way it's no longer tenable for him to be able to continue to restore confidence because people can't believe what he's doing because of that appearance of bias. 
in a, in a moment when Canadians need to see impartiality, someone who is free from any sort of bias, and that appearance is so strong that it really undermines his work. But are you putting the cart before the horse on this one? Because, you know, you're asking Mr. Johnson to, to step aside before seeing the, the security and intelligence documents upon which he, he based his report. How fair is it to ask him to, to essentially step down without that information first, uh, especially since you have agreed to look at those documents? I have agreed, and I think it's the right thing to do. That would be the case if I was basing my finding of an appearance of bias on his conclusions. But the appearance of bias isn't in his conclusions, it's in the appearance of the work around that. The fact that the chief lawyer that he engaged, the person that was there for all the meetings, that uh, did the analysis of documents, helped him with the report writing, was a liberal donor for basically every election since the early 2000s. That is something that has a very clear evidence-based appearance of bias that would undermine the public's ability to trust the outcome. On top of that, I'm not looking at the conclusions of the report, but some of the nature of the report, where the chief lawyer was a strong liberal supporter. In the report, the government's word on things is accepted without any pushback. The government's own position on something is accepted and then repeated in the report without any critique or questioning. All of that, coupled with the lawyer, gives an appearance of a bias that is not dependent on the outcome or the conclusions, but it's just on the appearance of the work being done and those doing the work. Oh, okay, but you know, it, it, the appearance aside, if you give it a, a third-party review, that it may help the appearance. And you know, Mr. Johnson himself, he's calling on the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency also for uh, NSICOP to, to review his conclusions. And he actually does say that those two bodies should speak out publicly if they don't agree with his conclusions. Why not let them do their work before coming to this motion? I think that work is important, but given the fact that Mr. Johnson is the one that is running the show, has been entrusted with this important position, and that the appearance of bias is so strong, it no longer gives him the ability to restore confidence. The whole exercise here was to take the, the allegations of foreign interference seriously, to give Canadians confidence that we're doing something about it. But when the person doing something about it is clouded with this appearance of bias, then the public can't trust the work that's being done and it doesn't restore confidence. It's why we said from the beginning that even the choice of having a special rapporteur was the wrong one. What should have, done is, what should have been done is a public inquiry. It has a rigor, cross-examination, witness under testimony, sorry, witnesses testimony under oath and that level of rigor and vigor gives Canadians more confidence. And we saw that with the Rouleau Commission, mm -hmm. how that gave Canadians, minus the most extreme fringes, confidence that the decision around the Emergencies Act was one that was taken in a good way and the assessment of that was done in such a way where Canadians were given a sense of confidence in decision-making and what led to that moment. Okay, but you, you keep talking about this appearance of bias, but are you just not feeding into that? Rather than supporting a former Governor General in his work, are you not destroying his, uh, his reputation by, by constantly saying that there's an appearance of bias against him? Well, it's not about Mr. Mr. Johnson's uh, track record. It's not about his position. He has served the country, there's no doubt. But when, when the question is about his analysis of the government's actions, did the government do the right thing or the wrong thing? And when the chief lawyer that worked with him, that did a lot of the analysis, is someone that was a liberal donor, it's hard for Canadians to believe that the decisions 
are being made in a way that doesn't have any bias when there's so much Do you think there's bias, bias though? Do you think there's bias? Well, and this is something I learned when I, when I studied this in law school. It's not about whether there is or is not bias. The appearance of bias undermines justice. And in this case, it's about restoring confidence in addition to justice, and that confidence is absolutely eroded because of the appearance. And the appearance is quite strong at this point. It does look like there's a bias, whether there is one or not. And okay. that appearance is so strong that it, you just can't move forward at this point. Okay, but you, you are calling once again for a public inquiry. And I, I have to say, you were asked this in the press conference, but you do lead the party, the only party really, that can actually force this government to bring about a public inquiry. You can do that by, by withdrawing your, uh, your support of the supply and confidence agreement. Why not use that hammer? If this truly is about getting a public inquiry, why not use that hammer now? Well, ultimately, the hammer that I have isn't just the agreement. It's forcing a vote. Because as people have mentioned, if the agreement is no longer there, the government functions like a minority government. And then they look for support from different parties on confidence votes. So there is no real hammer there. The real hammer is triggering an election. And I don't think it makes any sense to trigger an election when the concerns are about interference in an election unless measures are taken to safeguard our election. Then it would seem to be very self-serving. My goal is not to force an election. My goal is to force a public inquiry to restore confidence in our electoral system, to protect it, to make sure that there is no interference. And without any new measures being taken, without any recommendations in place that safeguard our democracy, it would be counterproductive. If the goal, like I think the Mr. Polyev's goal, is just to find an excuse for an election, sure. But my goal isn't to find an excuse for an election. My goal is truly to reinforce and strengthen our democracy. And to do that, the goal of triggering an election is not one that achieves it. And why would I remove the pressure I have on the government to deliver things like dental care, pharmacare, support for workers? The government doesn't want to do that. The liberals don't want to do any of these things. We're forcing them to do that. Really, what we have is an agreement for the liberals to do what we force them to do. I don't want to give away the forcing, the tool that we have to force them when we know that the government on their own wouldn't have done any of these things. Jagmeet Singh, thank you for the time this evening. Thank you. Well, let's get back to the Alberta campaign and the UCP's second majority win last night. Joining us right now is Jen Gerson, columnist and founder of The Line, and Rick Bell, columnist for the Calgary Sun. Nice to see both of you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Rick, I'll get you to start us out here, uh, it, because it seems like Danielle Smith convinced Albertans not to be concerned about her leadership, which the NDP wanted to do. Right. The, I mean, the brand is very, the United Conservative brand is very strong. Uh, it was, the party was created to make sure there weren't close elections. And I think it was a long walk for a lot of people to go from a United Conservative Party to an NDP, no matter how much they wanted to either demonize Danielle Smith, rightly or wrongly, or appear more centrist than they have in the past. So I think people did come home and they just didn't get enough of, of those UC, those so-called reluctant UCPers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Jen, what do you make of that? Was that too long of a walk? Was it an ideological divide? Or, or was it the very fact that the UCP, or rather the NDP focused on leadership more rather than perhaps promises? I think Rick is, is probably correct here. I think that uh, Notley and the NDP might have convinced a significant portion of, of, of those reluctant UCPers to, to attempt the NDP if they had run a stronger campaign. 
But bluntly, this uh, the NDP ran a twofold campaign. One is Danielle is not trustworthy. And on top of that, they didn't really have a lot um, in the way of vision in their own strategy or approach. I mean, I think probably the, the, the hallmark uh, um, suggestion coming from her camp, the most obvious, most visible one, was a small corporate tax increase. That's that's not playing to any strength. That's, in fact, playing to their weakness. It's not enough of a lure for people who would be tribally or ideologically associated with the conservative brand. And also keep in mind that for a lot of people, the NDP is associated rightly or wrongly with um, uh, the economic bust that followed to the 2014 oil crash. A lot of people still blame the NDP for uh, a very dark time in their lives and for for a period of, of low uh, employment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, listening to this, Rick, I'm wondering, was this a victory for the par- for the UCP as a party or was this a victory for Danielle Smith? Well, it's, def- it's you know definitely a victory a victory for the party. I, I saw that she's called it the miracle on the prairies. Well, it wasn't a miracle. I mean, most people were predicting, including myself, that uh, that she would win. Um, I think she I think she sees it as a big victory because I think in her mind she sees herself as being put upon, as being under constant attack, as being an object of of derision, of ridicule, uh, because the stories that came out during the campaign about things she said in the past and videos and candidates that made uh, certain remarks that uh, people found incredible and an ethics commissioner report that found her uh, guilty of, uh, of breaking the conflicts of interest law. So I think she sees it as a big victory. I always thought that Alberta being Alberta, yes, it's changed somewhat in the 30 plus years I've been here, but it was always going to be a very, very steep climb, a hard slog for the NDP to win. And a a testament of that is the fact that they won many seats in Calgary and still it wasn't enough. And Again, I just don't think that whole Danielle Smith is crazy, is unpredictable, is risky. Really, it did click with some people because you saw the results in Calgary go down. There are many defeats well, and, in and, Calgary. And Rick, I would, I would, I would kind of, I would agree with you for the most part here. But let's also be put this into perspective. A forty-nine seat majority is not an overwhelming majority. Um, right. the, the, the popular vote is actually strikingly even between the two parties. There's not a huge gap in the terms of the popular vote. And I think I've seen tr- uh, some graphs from Trevor Toome that suggest that, in fact, if 2,000 votes had gone other ways in select ridings, uh, this would be an NDP majority. So I don't think that – I agree with you that, that this was a very, very tough map from, from the, for the NDP. The NDP needed to flip almost right. 20 seats. Right. And that's hard for any party to do in any circumstance. It's certainly going to be hard for a, a progressive party to do in, a, in in Alberta when the Treasury is, is flush with resource cash and the economy is doing really well. The economic conditions absolutely favored an incumbent. The, in fact, if I think that if they had a less controversial leader at the helm of the party, they would be looking at a 60 to 70 seat majority. So I, I do think I do think that Danielle Smith um, did concern a lot of people. But what this election actually did is it 
killed the Alberta party and it killed the Liberal party. It killed a lot of these sorts of increasingly fringe vanity parties and convinced a lot of those people that really it was time to stop playing around and start uh, supporting the NDP as the progressive and the center left choice um, for for them. What it did, what the NDP did fail to do, is that it didn't convince the reluctant UCP voters, which is the people who they actually need to bring over if they're going to form government. Yeah, you know. Can, and, and, if I could, and if I could just jump in here for a second, uh, in October of last year, I've got the column over on the side here, <laughs> and it, and it was an interview with Danielle right after she won the leadership, talking about how do you think you'll win the next election. And she said, hold as many of my 39 seats outside the two big cities and win between 12 and 15, uh, 10 and 15 in Calgary. So, and she did. Can I ask, though, because, you know, you do have essentially this this urban rural divide, though, because you now have a UCP caucus, which is dominated by by uh, rural Alberta. How does that affect the government going forward? No representation in Edmonton, uh, lost seats in Calgary. How does that affect the kind of government we're going to see? Jen, I'll get you to start there. I think Danielle Smith is going to either be a, a, a generational premier or she's going to flame out spectacularly and hard. And I really, uh, it's a min-max scenario. I don't know what the answer of this is going to be. But if she is going to be um, a once-in-a-generation premier, Ralph Klein-esque, then what she is going to need to do is she's going to need to surround herself with a real diversity of viewpoints. And she's going to need to surround herself with a lot of really great, smart advisors who make sure that um, uh, some of her uh, informational hygiene problems are adjusted for that, that that she feels like she's getting a good represented rep representation of what people across the province, especially in the cities, are feeling because where where, where people in the cities um, align is not where people in rural Alberta align. Um, where people in downtown Calgary are going to align is a lot closer to where they would align on and with any other downtown populace. And that means that, for example, a lot of the 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 COVID measures that she was. Um, uh, uh, railing against um, during COVID, for example, would not have sold in 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 Calgary or or Edmonton. Um, she came to power at a fairly fortuitous time in mm -hmm. that regard. So you know, I I think that if she can surround herself with with a couple of people who have a, a at least a bead on what typical Calgarian urbanites or typical Cal Alberta urbanites feel on issues. Um, she is going to be well served by that. But if she is surrounding herself with extremely like-minded people from rural Alberta and solely from rural Alberta at her cabinet table, I think her the risk is that she is going to um, propose policies that don't actually have the support that she thinks that they do. Uh, Rick, how, what would you say? Exactly. And I think what she has to do is she has to, she always talks about Ralph Klein. Well, I covered Ralph Klein. I hung out with Ralph Klein to some degree. And definitely drank with him on a few occasions. <laughs> um, and uh, Ralph Klein always made it clear that you're not always going to get what you want. Everybody's going to have to put a little bit of water in their wine. And I think the group that Danielle Smith has to tell that story to and read that riot act to are some of the people like the so-called Take Back Alberta and other people sympathetic to that she has to tell them we have to be a big tent mainstream moderate conservative party which means you will get far more from me than you'd get from the ndp 
but you are not going to get everything. It was interesting yeah. at her party on the Stampede grounds yesterday. It was her attack on Trudeau that got the crowd yelling, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. It was the attack on Trudeau because the crowd that was, most of the crowd that was there, at least when I came in near the end, were the people who were also strong supporters when she ran for UCP leader. She now has mm. to tell those people, you don't get everything you want, full stop. Okay, listen, quickly losing time, but I do need to ask this of each of you. Now that Danielle Smith has won, what does that mean for provincial federal relations? Uh, quickly to each of you. Oh, I mean, I think that she is going to have the easiest time managing her, her caucus domestically when she's fighting Ottawa. So expect her to fight on everything, tooth and nail. Um, just transition, natural gas, she mentioned that during her speech, uh, any kind of green policy, uh, you are going to get screaming, wailing, and court challenges all the way down. Okay, Rick? <laughs> You're going to hear a lot from Danielle Smith. Be prepared. Even as far away from... Uh... Calgary as Ottawa is, you're going to hear from her because when in doubt, and this is true of other Alberta leaders, when your back's against the wall, there's always Ottawa to bash and bash hard. Okay. And she knows that. Her base loves it. The red meat will be served up and you'll be there in Ottawa to be able to sit down and Enjoy the menu. <laughs> well, I'll invite the both of you. Uh, but for now, thank you for that. Rick Bell, Jen Gerson, thank you for the time today. Thank you. Thank you. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Stay with the network. Up next, Esther Bejan avec l'Essentiel. We'll see you again tomorrow.